0: Hello, and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. We hope you're hungry, as on today's show, we're taking a look at food on the big screen. Why do mealtimes make such perfect settings for tensions to build in on-screen drama? Which films showcase the tastiest-looking grub? And what's it take to produce the food that works on a film set? Well, the new film The Menu follows a group of diners on their way to an isolated island for an exclusive dining experience. Guests eagerly await a multi-course concept menu that promises decadent plating and sumptuous mouthfeel. Ray Fiennes plays a haughty chef, Julian Slowick, who presides over diners and the kitchen staff on the way to this black comedy's dramatic final course. First up on today's programme, let's hear from the food stylist from the menu, Kendall Gensler. Kendall has over 15 years' experience in food styling and we caught up with her to find out just how the extravagant meals were put together, accommodating the camera and remaining edible for the actors. Kendall, um, thank you so much for for your time today and uh, for being on the show. I wanted to ask you first, as far as the menu is concerned, what was the remit? What were the producers and the the director of the movie want the food to look like for this?
1: Well, first of all, I think from an important point of view, the food sort of set each scene. So that was very important. And there was a progression with the food. Um, Of course, starting with the island as the guests arrived, that was sort of a diorama of their entire experience. Um, So we moved through food that was sort of very cold um, so that it kind of set the tone. Mm -hmm. And then as the film, uh, you know, proceeded, it became more warm and tactile,
0: red blooded. You might almost say.
1: Yes. Yes. Exactly.
0: <laughs> um, and we're in um, the the sort of the, the the culinary universe and the sort of stylistic universe for the menu is kind of what we might call. Uh, uh, something similar to the to a very famous Scandinavian restaurant. It seems to have that kind of vibe, um, and that kind of food. There's a lot of you know. They say they say at the beginning of the film, and it's in the trailer as well. We are a family. We gel together. We we fry together. We do everything together. Um, so, and, and there are an in, intense close-ups on the food. This is not just like having a feast scene in a in a, ba- a banqueting scene in a medieval picture or, or something slick in a kind of American psycho kind of thing. This is very much um, front and center. So tell us about how you kind of wrote the menu for the menu, if, if you know what I mean, Kendall.
1: Well, actually the writers put the menu items in place as it related to the script. And there were multiple layers. So the writing team consulted with Dominique Crin in terms of getting the look that they wanted for each dish. And then I was brought in and I sort of had to retrofit those dishes to make sure that they worked and stood up to camera time, etc. So it really was a true collaboration between the writers, the director, Dominique Crin's team, and myself.
0: And just tell us, just tell our listeners um, who Dominique Crin and her team do. What what do they do on the movie?
1: Well, Dominique Crin is a Michelin-starred female chef in yeah. America on the West Coast who is uber talented. And her team came and we went through every dish. So they submitted them to the production company. And they went through various trials and tribulations and then finally they decided upon what the general look, the plating, that sort of thing would be.
0: There's some sort of nice fine line in much of the film, or at least the early part of the film, where we do see kind of some genuinely amazing food coming out of this phenomenal kitchen under this, you know megalomaniac kind of head chef I suppose and 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 in terms of though of the of the sort of screen time that some of this food can exist for this food is all about freshness a lot of it's raw or it's it's oysters done in a certain way there's a lot of um, fish roe and things like this that are devils to place on a plate of food at the best of times in a restaurant on a set with actors and and crew and lighting and presumably a lot of heat and action and light going on around it must be an absolute nightmare so tell me a little bit if you can about the reality of having to have this food that you know even in the kind of laboratory setting of some kitchens might be tough to make making that sort of stuff on a film set
1: Yes, and then actually, I'd like to add that we had another layer, and that is the actors themselves have various dietary restrictions.
0: Of course they do. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So
1: we had to, you know, we had that layer to bring in. I think one of the most difficult items are the foams. I was actually, if I was not under the set, I was on the side with a vat, and an immersion blender and you know we would have to replace that shoot replace shoot replace with you know that whole thing so that was quite something the the other thing about this film is that it it was all food all the time so we had a lot of food a lot of orchestration we were able to Shoot the film in chronological order, which really helped us out a lot.
0: And you know in terms of the training of of the actors, both the diners and Ray Fiennes and his his staff, you know people have to people will train with a pianist um in order to be able to look like they can at least play the piano on on a film set. Or paint a painting, or something like this. What 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 does it take for actors to to look comfortable around food, especially the the actors playing chefs?
1: Dominique did come to set to work with Rafe in the beginning, mm-hmm. so that all of you know his movements, and we went through the entire script top to bottom with him. And you know he's just wonderful. So he's so in the moment and present. So watching him work with Dominique was really something. The other is that all of the background players had worked in the industry. So we had some pastry chefs, we had some servers and this sort of thing. So they were sort of used to the flow of a kitchen. And we shot the film in Savannah and there was a chef in Savannah who was hired only to watch the monitor and to watch and instruct the background so all of the movements and the knives and the you know the preparation the tweezing was monitored and we would cut we would you know make changes if something didn't look correct
0: yeah it's an interesting one we know that many actors you know have weighted tables or vice versa (laughs) so that probably wasn't a problem but the actual plating of the food and looking comfortable with a big meat cleaver or a very sharp knife in your hand I suppose is a different thing but yeah it's it's interesting stuff and what about in terms of the food how the cinematographer takes pictures of that that food and makes moving pictures of that food what are surprisingly easy or difficult things to get right that look Something that might look, a sizzling steak might look wonderful in real life, but always looks dead on the, on the screen, for example. Are, are there are there kind of things that are in your trade that are well-known things that just are so tough to translate for the big or small screen?
1: Well, actually, the progression in the food styling industry has gone from being more plastic, if you will, with you know, holding things together with various items, I mean, to being more real. The wonderful thing about the Michelin-starred world is that the design of all of their plates is very component-specific. And so that is a wonderful thing for a food stylist. And then the one thing that I can concentrate on is that I always want color because the color is going to pop and really bring the dish to light. So all of the food is real in this film except for... In certain instances, for instance, on the island, there's a raw chilled scallop and we couldn't keep scallops on set constantly because of the heat and the actors had to actually eat them. Some people did not want to eat crudo constantly. So we used punched potatoes that were seasoned. And so when you see them from afar, it's potatoes. When you see a close up, it's definitely a scallop.
0: Okay, now it's good to know some of these tricks of, of your most recent trade on the menu, Kendall. And it's it's an amazing thing. Did did everyone leave the set at the end of the day and just hanker after a burger and fries? I mean, it, there's such a lot of highfaluting fine food on display. It feels like people need an antidote, or or, or did it wet people's appetites to to go to Dominique's restaurant at the end of at the end of shooting?
1: Well, I think everyone wanted to go to Dominique's restaurant at the end of shooting. But there is definitely the need for the more simple down to earth fare, not to say that the food is pretentious, but it does some of these dishes are almost microscopically small on on some <laughs> terms, you know, like yeah. on the slate with the the tiniest of melon balls and a little wisp of snow, you know it does kind of leave you hungry but then again that's why you're in in some instances a 12 to 14 course tasting menu and all of the actors on this film were very down to earth and just genuinely i think kind of the burger and fry crowd
0: <laughs> kendall thanks uh, thank you so much for your time and i'm starving hungry now just having spoken to you
1: and we're good we did our job
0: That was the food stylist Kendall Gensler who worked on the new film The Menu. Now, whether it's the $5 milkshake in Pulp Fiction, Sophia Copper's sugary pastel feast in Marie Antoinette, or the hectic plate spinning of Boiling Point, food has clearly had an enduring appeal for filmmakers. So to chew this over, I'm now joined by the film critic, writer and broadcaster, Leila Latif, and by the digital editor at Little White Lives magazine, Hannah Strong. Let's start off with a bit of the trailer for the menu. Welcome to half
2: here we are family. Yes, chef. We harvest, we ferment, we gel. We gel. We
0: gel. He's not just a chef, he's a storyteller. The game is trying to guess what the overarching theme of the entire meal is going to be. You won't know until the end. It's clean, it's austere, it's slightly terrifying. It's the menu, um, Layla and Hannah. Lovely to have you uh, on the program. We had a little bit of the trailer there to get us into the mood. Um, and Layla, I know you share expertise in both film world and the world of fine dining. So, did it feel, as a cinema goer, that we got on the boat and we went across to this, slightly frightening triple Michelin starred restaurant?
2: Yeah, I, I think it definitely captured a lot of that. And a lot of the kind of the current trends in um, in fine dining, there's a lot of foraging going on. It's a lot about, you know, connecting to the earth and creating these narratives and sustainable places. And uh, yeah, I think it did capture that. Uh, there's a lot of little references if you are a fine dining buff in there. There was kind of references to some of Heston Blumenthal's dish. There's a lot of Rene Redzepi from NOMA. But yeah, I think what it really nailed is because I, you know, worked in restaurants for a very long time. Is that weird parasocial dynamic that happens between you and your customers, where you just feel I would do anything for you, but also sort of hate yourself for it.
0: Yeah, there's a the, the film does does properly horrifying things quite well but the thing perhaps it does best of all at least to my mind was that kind of slightly terrifying thing you have when you go into a very smart restaurant and you kind of not not entirely sure whether you as the paying customer know how to behave it seems to (laughs) seems to do that quite well Hannah how did it make you feel
3: it made me really want to go to a mission-starred restaurant which is something I've never done I'm very much um, not of that world I I love I eating out, I think it's one of my great pleasures in the world is going to a nice restaurant uh, for a special occasion. And this did kind of, I think, capture what we expect from these uh, establishments, the kind of the emphasis on storytelling and how a menu is a journey that you go through. I did kind of wonder if it really um, seeing a kitchen work like that is kind of accurate or not i mean it it was very um theatrical very choreographed the way all the chefs kind of moved around this open kitchen station and i think recently we've had a lot more portrayals of kitchens as kind of chaotic spaces with a lot of shouting and things being dropped and people being injured so i was very um Kind of surprised to see a kitchen that almost it was like watching a ballet, kind of seeing these cooks all move around each other very fluidly. And that was all obviously part of this dining experience. That was kind of the mesmerising thing for me. I could have probably watched two hours of just the kitchen staff moving around cooking things.
0: Well, Leila, I mean, you know, uh, Hannah sort of pointed out the kind of military precision with which Ray finds his kitchen in Hawthorne how it moves and there is some of that choreographed balletic consistency to the way that a good kitchen works right did it feel like Mark Mylod and his team captured that correctly in the menu
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, you would be surprised at how accurate this is to a lot of uh, what goes on in these very, very high-end kitchens. I did a, a few days, a little stage training at a mission-starred restaurant in, in uh, London, and that was, you know, people would barely whisper. It was just silent as you would kind of use tweezers to pick the little bit leaves of chervil. And I did a tour a few years ago of the restaurant uh, Noma, Um, in in Copenhagen, and that is just the most well-oiled machine imaginable. Everybody has their tiny, tiny task that they are doing with, like, almost surgical precision.
0: Restaurants are supposed to play... As as Hannah said, we go to restaurants to celebrate birthdays, holidays, all the rest of it, sometimes just because we're hungry. (laughs) But the capacity for joy and sort of a relaxing kind of fun night out where you, you kind of do a lot of deep dives into the wine list does not seem to be the kind of night that you would have at Hawthorne Leila. Am I right or am I wrong? Is this the kind of place which would welcome the birthdays of anything other than a plutocrat?
2: I think when you get into that level of food, it goes so far beyond trying to make things tasty or enjoyable. It's for them, it's all about research and, you know, where everything comes from and what this is referencing. Like, it's gotten so far past, like, will you find this delicious at all? <laughs> like, that they're aiming for something higher. It's a bit like art where it's just like, oh, we've gone past trying to make something pretty. We're trying to make something, like, brilliant
0: yes yeah exactly it's got a kind of white cube feel to it certainly this this kitchen hasn't it it's about displaying things on the plainest of backgrounds to to, in order to to bring those ingredients to life let's switch from the food to the movie hannah how does Mark Mylod and his team kind of go through the gears to, to convince us that we're in this frightening place, uh, to give a sense of foreboding?
3: Yes, I feel like whenever characters go to an island in a film, you kind of get the vibe that something is not going to go well for them. And that's certainly um, what we have in the menu. They go to this, much like Noma, you have to kind of get a boat to go there. So there's something of this idea of being taken to a secluded place. <laughs> and we have this cast of characters who are the kind Kind of uber wealthy, uber elites, um, and a very snobby restaurant critic who has some history with Hawthorne. And the thing that I think the film does very well is like it withholds Ray Fine's character, this kind of avant-garde gastronomical genius, a little bit. And so we have a lot of time where his number two, his deputy, uh, played by Hong Chao, who's an amazing actress and is having an amazing year actually on screen. Uh, she's leading the guests around, showing them all these elements that they're very proud of at Hawthorne. They have these amazing gardens and she's explaining how they kind of do everything. And amidst this, we have Anya Taylor-Joy's character, who is kind of the audience surrogate I suppose she's the the outlier I guess she's um been taken there by Nicholas Holt's character and he is super super into all this fine dining stuff and she is very much not and it's quite fun to see that uh, contrast between them as he's you know kind of trying to engage her in conversation about it and she's just not interested at all
0: and we and we walk through as, as you mentioned at the beginning Hannah we walk through this this tasting menu and the dishes get more outlandish more kind of avant-garde to use your word I suppose and then something happens and and Layla um, is it obvious as a film critic more than <laughs> more than someone with with also rich history and fine dining that that the inevitable is going to happen we're not going to employ spoilers on this program today but can you see the writing on the wall from perhaps the hors d'oeuvres.
2: You can in a way, but there was a part of me that was so into the food side of things that I, I was in denial. I was like, surely it's not gonna end up being that dumb. And and sadly it was.
0: <laughs> there are some creative ways in which in which this happens. This kind of reminded me slightly of of something like the Square, Ruben Ostlund's film that sort of poked fun at the contemporary art world and 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 the kind of what what you could possibly do as the next kind of big performance art piece, right? Was it in slightly in that world, Leila? Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm not a
2: huge fan of the Square either because I think there's you know, sure we can kind of point out that all of this is a bit ridiculous, but there's not much more commentary than that going on and like yeah you know obviously you sure eat the rich whatever but like that is that is just so the least interesting element of this and Ray Fiennes is such a great character um that yeah I think it all gets squandered by it kind of attempting to shovel it into satire.
0: So is that, is that the case I mean Hannah um how well disposed were you generally to uh to the menu and maybe Lady's right so that if she is saying this, in fact, that, that Ray Fiennes' character was a great character in Search of a Wonderful Film to be in. He's certainly got a sort of haunted brilliance about him, I suppose, in this, hasn't he?
3: Yes. I mean, I love watching Ray Fiennes. I think he's such an incredible, not only a dramatic talent, but a comedic talent. And this kind of role where he's playing this incredibly austere, um, dark character where he has this kind of um, simmering undercurrent of uh, turmoil and is so clearly a genius but um, a genius in a very specific way. There's almost like a Bond villain kind of quantity to this character and uh, yeah I think that the film maybe couldn't quite keep up with him which is a shame because lord has made uh, been part of some incredible um, shows that kind of satirise the wealthy he's uh, been involved with Veep and with Succession so I think I was just maybe hoping for a little bit more maybe pushing the uh, metaphor of eat the rich a little bit further because in the end it, to me the ending feels very similar to the climax of the film ratatouille which um, maybe is not what i was expecting going into this um, but i did think maybe it could have pushed the envelope a little bit further um, as i think that reuben austin does this very well in his films like triangle sadness and obviously the square i've just talked about there is a sense of kind of real i don't know kind of uh, you feel satisfied. And I don't think I necessarily felt satisfied by the climax of this film, but it's a very stylish affair. You know, I, I, I very much enjoyed being in the world it's set in. I just kind of would have, I, it left me hungry for more, I guess.
0: <laughs> they'll, put, they'll, they'll be putting that on the poster. Um, so <laughs> less Dr. No, more Dr. Yes Chef. Right.
2: I was just, I have to say, I was just very disappointed by the time we kind of get to the end and that sort of, yes, Ratatouille esque climax. You, you, it sort of feels that the film wanted to be about fine dining and actually kind of holds no value in all of the work and the skill and the artistry and that. It actually completely like undermines, you know, some of the amazing elements of it. And I, I don't think you can kind of dismiss this entire you know, sector of, uh, you know, of food, of chefs, of the work that they do as just being, you know, uh, ultimately just empty and hollow because I've been mean, having been in that world, that's not the case. These are people who care passionately about what they do. There's a level of obsession and there's a huge amount of love and devotion that goes into those sorts of places, even if they aren't, you know,
0: attacking people. <laughs> nice. Okay, so that was the menu. Um, we're going to move on now. We're going to talk about... Kind of the other f- uh, uh, food films that it made you guys think of. Let it all we'll stick with you for for your first choice. Jiro dreams of sushi. We're in a we're in a very we're in a slightly austere world with this, but of a very different measure. For the uninitiated, tell us about this one.
2: So this was a documentary, I believe, from two thousand and four, and it's about this incredibly special restaurant in Tokyo. Tokyo's actually got the most Michelin stars of any city in the world. And one of them is a three-mission starred place that's in a subway station, and it doesn't have a fridge, and it's got about eight seats, and you pay some—I mean, I've never been, but you pay some astronomical amount of money, and it takes about forty minutes. And it is this man who I believe in this film is in—he's in his uh, late eighties now. He's still working, and I believe he's—he's uh, he's kind of past the hundred, the the hundred mark, and he is just obsessed with sushi. And he goes every morning and he goes and he chooses the fish and he kind of works with such precision over like even, you know, how long you can hold onto the rice for because there is an element of that that heat just from your fingertips actually changes the entire flavor profile of things. It's a very sweet film because he's also got his son who is like at this point in his 70s that really wants to succeed him and but you know Hero does not want to give a, does not want to retire at any point. It's I I I mean I would do anything to go to that restaurant.
0: It's a 21st century classic really, isn't it? Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Um Leila, thanks very much. Um, Hannah, you're taking us into the fictional realm with um, anyone that's seen this movie will probably know which scene you've picked <laughs> from Phantom Thread. <laughs> yes. Because when Mr. Woodcock gets hungry, what does he want?
3: Uh, he would like a Welsh rabbit with a poached egg on top, not too runny, and bacon scones, butter, jam, not strawberry, and a pot of lapsang with some sausages.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we learn about this this sort of odd kind of g- genius again through his palate, right, and through his through his appetites.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And the whole film is this you know, kind of twisted romance between uh, Reynolds Woodcock and Alma, who is the waitress who he gives this kind of ridiculous but incredible food order to in a little um, seaside cafe where he's gone to kind of recuperate. And um, it's just such an amazing scene because it has this thing of being very indicative of his character. He's incredibly precise, very discerning man who knows exactly how he wants things and is not used to being challenged on that. But it's also very flirtatious. And just through the act of giving a breakfast order, we have this whole kind of dynamic established. And I think it's incredibly indicative of what uh, Paul Thomas Anderson does so well as a writer. He's an incredibly good screenwriter, but uh, also sets up the kind of, underlying element of this film of how important food is to these characters you know alma is a waitress that's kind of how she's making a living and throughout the film we have these uh, meals that they take together or with reynolds sister and the dynamic is so fun to watch and there's so much kind of said through the choice of what they're eating or um the way that alma particularly kind of um, makes a noise with her knife and fork there's an amazing scene later in the film where they're eating in a ski resort and she great kind of like clacks the spoon against her teeth and oh Daniel Day-Lewis gives the most withering look and every time I've seen this film with an audience everyone has just kind of cackled it's such a Brilliant moment, and yeah, I think that that it really illustrates this scene in particular. illustrates that kind of relationship we have with our favourite foods.
0: And there's some sort of controversially loud toast, isn't there? Um, very early on in their marriage, <laughs> I seem to remember, which does not go down well at that in that sort of beautiful Edwardian uh, breakfast room that they all, the the three of them, have their have their breakfast in. It's so good, and food is such a good way in. I re- uh, listened to a podcast on which. Paul Thomas Anderson was interviewed about his relationship with Daniel Day-Lewis. And a lot of that scene, the breakfast scene in the B&B was ad-libbed because Daniel Day-Lewis was just trying to make Paul Thomas Anderson crack up. And apparently he had to walk off set because he couldn't be in the same room as Daniel Day-Lewis because he kept on adding ridiculous things onto this breakfast order just (laughs) in order to have him cracking up. And they left it in the movie. So it's a sort of (laughs) it's a sort of accidental massive score isn't it It, it's it's a it's a beautiful beautiful one i know also you both wanted i think you both brought up big night which was one of stanley tucci's sort of breakout movies wasn't it from 1997 who would like to take on the louis prima dinner scene um, Leila, maybe, would you like to, to pick up this one?
1: Oh, yeah,
2: I love I love Big Night so much. And, yeah, I think it really, like, nails about, like, the importance of um, food as in terms of culture because it is this also uh, an immigrant story. These two brothers coming from Italy, they want to bring the food of their ancestors. They want to bring their culture in. It's, they have such an unreceptive audience for the most part. But, yeah, in the end, it all builds to this... One dish, which is called a, a timpano, which is this very kind of many-layered pasta thing which kind of seems to have, you know, very difficult structural integrity, and they pull it off. And it's such a moment of, like, communicating love, communicating culture, and actually finally getting from your customers what you needed from them. Because, you know, it, it is a very emotionally wrought dynamic often between the customer and the kitchen.
0: <laughs> it's been beautifully executed, I'm going to add to that the, the cliched meatballs and pasta scene from The Lady in the Tramp, which is one of my favourite food <laughs> things. Um, thank you both very much for talking us through, well, your favourite film scenes from movies um, and your feelings about the menu. Um, Leila Latif and Hannah Strong, thank you very much uh, for joining us. And that is it for today's programme. My thanks to Kendall Gensler, Leila Latif, and Hannah Strong. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>